Alan Cavada of Fox Sports, joined by Dave Smith of The Athletic. On this episode, fallout and free agency. We talk about it in good times, we gotta talk about it in bad. That and the delay of the next-gen car, what it means and who it benefits. But first, as always, this is episode 57 of Positive Regression. This is the Rod Osterland edition. David, this may be a first. Rod Osterland was an owner, not a driver. I mean, but his his drivers included Dale Earnhardt, David Pearson, Dan Gurney, Janet Guthrie. And for a time, his car was the number 57. David, tell us why it was number 57. Yeah, Rod Osterland had uh, a championship winning career as a car owner. He won the 1980 championship with Dale Earnhardt, but the year, one year later, uh, he sold to JD Stacey. And that was it for Rod Osterland's Cup Series ownership until 1989. And what brought him back was a sponsorship with Heinz. Yes, that Heinz, the ketchup company. And, and the, the number 57 is synonymous with that brand. We think of the Heinz 57 ketchup, um, there, and their other sauces. And this was not the earliest example that I could come up with of sponsor synergy, uh, working with the team to create a marketing tool. In this case, it was the number, but it was certainly a prominent one. And it provoked some thought for me, Alan. So I, I was curious. I, I gave you a task as well. I'm sure that we're going to intersect on some. But for you, what were some other cars, other teams that had sponsorships that also had a tie-in with the car number? I came up with two. So hopefully that's enough. But um, the first one is one of my favorite paint schemes of all time, the Jack Daniels 07. Uh, driven by Clint Boyer and I think Dave Blaney for a time, maybe some others, but such a beautiful paint scheme and a perfect, perfect way to incorporate that 07 font, the black and the white. Uh, I just thought that was perfect. Uh, that is a memorable one for me. I'd love to hear those discussions. You got to put the 07 on the car. Okay. <laughs> and the other uh, that I remember is uh, well before uh, the, the greatness of, uh, Stuart Haas racing at the moment, it was Haas CNC racing. And I think the first, the first car Gene Haas ever had was the net zero car with a big old zero on it sponsored by net zero internet when internet sponsorships were a uh, big deal. So, uh, the big zero and the big zero seven or two, I remember. Okay. So I've got a few that I can add to that list. Uh, the number 45 car driven by Rich Bickle and owned by Tim Beverly. It was previously the second iteration of that Tabasco number 35 car that we uh, have fond memories of. But, uh, the very next year it was number 45 because the sponsor was 1010 three, four, five, which was a collect call yes. company. Collect That's call right. yeah. then. Oh yeah. And, uh, so, so there was some association there in the early 1980s, Petty Enterprises ran a number seven car for Kyle Petty because the sponsor was 7-Eleven. Very stylish looking car. Nice. Uh, even, yeah. even it seemed then it was a throwback paint scheme. It's certainly a throwback paint scheme now, but looked great. Uh, Red Bull Racing, when they surfaced in NASCAR, yes, good call. trotted out a number 83 because the typical Red Bull can is 8.3 ounces. Uh, so that was, that was Brian Vickers number when he was at Red Bull Racing. Uh, and then the final one I had was the Sunoco number 94 that Sterling Marlin drove at Hagen Racing. That represented one of Sunoco's octane blends. 
Uh, if you can recall, Hagen Racing won a championship with Terry Labonte. It was a number 44 car. So the team changed its traditional number to suit its sponsor. So, uh, yeah, that, I mean, that's interesting. Um, we, we've never really ventured into sponsorship discussion, but, uh, you know, I'm curious, Alan, what, what's your take on this? How much value is too much? Is, is, is a decision over a car number too much sway to give a sponsor? No, I mean, I personally don't think so. Again, they're the ones footing the bill for millions of dollars. Um, I mean, if you, if you're asking Richard Childress to change the three, I mean, maybe that's a little much to ask, but in any other, uh, normal case, uh, I think you do much of what the sponsor asks of you, right? I mean, there, there, look, there's always going to be a lot of brand association and history to a number you might not want to get rid of if you're a sponsor. But if you're the Heinz 57 car, I mean, that's, that, that's a perfect association, right? I mean, that, that is a great way to sell your product. Like, same thing with the Jack Daniels 07. Uh, I mean, it's on every bottle. Why wouldn't it be on the race car as well? So again, if they're cutting the check, they get to make a whole lot of decisions uh, about what should happen. And I don't think you should, uh, put up too much fuss if you're an owner, uh, whether the economy's great or whether the economy's bad, because, uh, those, those millions do not come easy. So, uh, yeah, I would bend over backwards for a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, but it, but it isn't something that can always be offered, right? Numbers aren't always readily available, Correct, but yeah. I agree. I agree with you. If the money is right, then it makes plenty of sense, uh, to do this. But when the money isn't right, uh, it strikes me as a tall ask. And lately we've been seeing primary sponsors, which, uh, we consider just a company getting an entire car coming at cut rate deals. And, uh, some of that is change to a post 2008 recession market value. That makes sense. And some of that is teams, especially at the back half of the cup series fields, Xfinity fields, truck fields, giving primary space to little money or no money sponsorships, which does sort of devalue a primary sponsorship in the top half of the field because absent of exposure on a race telecast, all the bells and whistles that come with a partnership of that perceived magnitude are the same from at-track branding to hospitality. So there is a fine line here. Alex Bowman's car, when he won at Fontana, was sponsored by Cincinnati, if you can remember. Yeah. Uh, that is a machine tool manufacturer, and it's not a stretch to assume this deal was part of a barter, not a uh, an on-the-table financial transaction. Business Hendrick to business, we'll call it. Business to business. Hendrick receives a discount on laser-cutting equipment in exchange for uh, primary sponsorship that probably garnered, because Bowman led a lot of that race and uh, eventually won it, probably garnered between $500,000 and $750,000 worth of television exposure in that race alone. You can understand why Hendrick did what it did, but Hendrick might have undervalued the asset that was traded given that Cincinnati, good on them, just took back a considerable amount of value for probably what they paid to be on that car. So it is, it is, it is a tricky balance, uh, that owners have to deal with. Yes. And uh, again, certain situations where they make sense. I mean, it just makes sense to have a, a, a certain specified number. Uh, I still wish I had one of those Jack Daniels diecasts because it was just such a pretty car. And if you want your 57 car to look like a ketchup bottle and Heinz is cutting the uh, the check, you make that car look like a ketchup bottle. 
you just do what they say, right? I mean, it's like all, you know those those movies where you got to dress up like a like a, like a chicken or you, you know whatever. You got to wear a clown head uh, if the sponsor is asking you to. I mean, some drivers you just gotta you gotta bite the bullet and take that check and, and go racing on Sunday. It's what you got to do. Well, we've made history on positive regression because that is, to my knowledge, the first stroker ace inference. <laughs> That we've made. So we're off to a really strong start. Yes, we are. Episode 57 of Positive Regression. All right, let's get it started in terms of it's been a hell of a week for NASCAR, even though they are not on track. Um, just to recap, on Sunday night, Kyle Larson said a racist word on an online race. On Monday, he lost all his sponsors. By Tuesday, he lost his job with Chip Ganassi Racing. Now, David, it's not on us to tell you how awful and inappropriate this incident is for Larson and the damage it's done to the NASCAR community. But what we will talk about is the racing side of this. It was just a few weeks ago, we did a whole episode about free agency, and we deemed Kyle Larson as the number one free agent in the sport. Uh, if we talk about him then, we have to talk about it now. So from that aspect of it, the racing aspect of it, now that he doesn't have a job, is Kyle Larson employable? What do you think? Yes, he is. And I'll say that is by the definition, because if employees are valued by their ability to produce results, then he is one of the most valuable in the world at what he does. There have been similar incidents in other sports for use of racial slurs and anti-gay slurs um, those players were suspended, uh, stick and ball sports. They acted contrite. Um, and eventually they carried on with their careers. It's unfortunate that their teams and their employers looked in other directions while continuing to pay those players. But in NASCAR and in the wider world of auto racing, it is a much different ball game. The uniform does not say Houston Astros or Boston Red Sox. It says credit one bank. And McDonald's and companies of that magnitude do not have a need for a flawed spokesperson. So while based on his talent, his ability to perform, Kyle Larson is employable, it is going to be very difficult to clear this hurdle. I'm sure there is at least one team owner. I don't have anyone in mind. I'm just going to go by the odds. There are a lot of team owners. I'm sure someone's thinking it that will understand Larson's value and kick the tires on the idea of potentially bringing him in on an absurd team-friendly deal. But those hurdles involved in doing this are large. We can pretty much rule out any publicly traded company allowing this to happen. And also, Chevrolet, and I thought this was a very interesting move by Chevrolet, announced it severed ties with Larson, and this came before uh, Larson's release from Ganassi came to light. This is proof that the game never stops, because in doing this, Chevrolet ensured that if Ford or Toyota were involved in Larson's comeback, it would be a PR nightmare of epic proportions to which they would have to respond, and a huge distraction to the task at hand. That is some three-dimensional chess being played by Chevrolet, and that is a hurdle any owner will now have to face, um, and that is if they're willing to go down this path at all. So, look, for, I mean, look from where I sit, he is employable on paper, but getting him on the books is a tall task, 
and one that might not be worth the effort. Yeah, well said. I mean, for me, this was a tougher to answer than I first thought. Is Kyle Larson employable? Because everyone is forgivable, right? Everyone is redeemable, assuming he puts in the work. But it, it comes down to a sponsor. It doesn't come down to one GM or one owner necessarily saying yes. It, it comes down to the ability to convince a n- enormous billion-dollar company to be your spokesperson, maybe your your most visible spokesperson. And I, I don't know if, if that's possible, certainly in the short term. I don't know in the long term. You know, in the short term, maybe a small self-funded team. I don't know. I mean, you have to you have to have someone who, who is not relying on, on sponsorship money, which I don't know if that really exists. Uh, you know, like a Gene Haas who could just do it with his own money. Would he want to? Wouldn't that affect the other sponsors that go along with Stuart Haas Racing? I mean, would you want him in the team photo, right? Especially, I mean, these are all odd logistical questions you have to think of. You know, is is his talent worth it? We know his talent is there. Is his talent worth the PR hit? The just the 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 moral argument against having him there. I mean, I, I don't know. Now, long term, assuming he completes his required work, I do see believe he will get a job again because he is talented, like you said, and talented people are employable. But I don't know what that timetable is, and. Hmm. I was trying yeah. to rack my brain, Dave. I mean, you brought up other sports, but I was trying to apply it to NASCAR. I don't think we, we haven't hit this, right? We haven't hit this situation. I mean, Kurt no. Busch had a bad attitude, right? And and had and got knocked down a bunch of pegs, and it took him years to get back to a high level team. And this is not comparable whatsoever. It's hard for me to even envision a hypothetical because there is no comparable situation when it comes to millions of dollars from a sponsor and asking a sponsor to be your funder and to be a spokesperson for a company. I mean, a lot of work is going to have to go into this. Yeah, and I don't even think that's a realistic option anymore. I think Larson might be at the point where he is going to have to find his own funding. He'll have to rely on a private benefactor to continue his racing because he is forever going to be branded as this guy. This will be atop every Google search for him going forward. I think the days of a NASCAR team or think of any team in any top flight series, uh, Marshall Pruitt, a uh, reporter for Racer Magazine, uh, tweeted that he had talked to two team owners, uh, either in IndyCar or sports cars, that told him they had already been contacted by sponsors saying that if any of their drivers pulled a Larson, uh, there would be no deliberation. They would be gone. I, I can't, I can't see a, a team attempting to secure sponsorship now or even down the road for Larson. This responsibility is going to fall on himself, not saying it's not impossible. It is going to be very difficult and even looking down the road, I mean, if I'm right, he goes towards the private benefactor route. I wouldn't be surprised if there's someone willing to pay for his racing, but my surprise will come if the amount of money at his disposal is large enough for a full-time top-tier Cup Series ride because those don't come cheap. And, you know, having said that, the most likely landing spot for him, at least immediately, is in dirt racing, where it's certainly more affordable. He's had plenty of success. He could certainly continue to do that. 
Uh, we've heard stories about Steve Kenzer and Scott Bloomquist essentially making small fortunes on merchandise sales alone. Larson might be a guy who can do that if social media has taught us anything. He has supporters even after all this, but this would be an existence for him far removed from the one he had a week ago. This is a life-altering change he brought on himself. Uh, The reactions appropriately were swift and painful. And I don't know, as you mentioned, there is no uh, template for this. It's something that we didn't want to have to imagine, but it's here. And he is going to be the one blazing a path of his own creation. Yeah, and where that path goes is up to him. Look, like like I said, this is America. We we like second chances. He is forgivable. He can change. He can apologize. He can, uh, you know, be be contrite. Time seems to heal all wounds, just in in life. But the reality of, of asking a company to give you millions of dollars to go racing, they're so. It's so much easier to say no, right? If you're a CEO of a company, right? You're looking for any reason to say no. It's so much easier to say no than yes. So to overcome this will be a, a hell of a reason to say no for a long time. And David, like we said, this all applies to to the, the racing side of things. Just a few weeks ago, Kyle Larson, we deemed him the number one free agent in the series of NASCAR. Uh, safe to say that is not the case anymore. So what does this do to the, the free agent landscape of NASCAR? I actually believe that the pandemic we're currently enduring is going to have a bigger impact on the movement in free agency. Um, also this week, um, you know, if you've been paying attention to the news, Smithfield Foods, uh, had to close operations and that's going to affect one Eric Almarola. Um, that was, that was the card that he had up his sleeve entering free agency. So, that could mean that a ride is lost at Stuart Haas. That could mean that Eric Almarola can't go anywhere else. So if anything, we have created more questions in about two weeks time than we had when we did our free agency episode. Still though, the, the value of a driver like a Brad Keselowski who uh, now, look, he's the number one guy on the board, rightfully so. He is a an elite, well-rounded driver. There are little weaknesses to his driving repertoire. He is going to be given an enhanced look from every suitor. Maybe the suitors that were considering Kyle Larson are going to have to look at Brad Keselowski or give a look towards Eric Jones or Alex Bowman who are proving themselves productive in this current car that we're also going to have next season uh, and are young enough where you can still build a team around moving forward, which is something that suitors would have had had they uh, signed Kyle Larson. So we may see drivers come to the surface. This may benefit someone like a Daniel Suarez because there is one more viable ride on the table. It could benefit Corey LaJoy, uh, who has made his intentions clear. He wanted the ride at Hendrick, uh, <laughs> delivered the letter by hand to Rick Hendrick, but there may be more realistic options for him to consider. While I agree with my colleague, Jeff Gluck, 
for the athletic, he said that there were no winners, uh, in NASCAR from this, uh, no one, frankly, won as a result of this. I think there will be an opportunity for someone to take advantage of that wasn't previously available. So we're going to experience some shakeups. Even right now, the 42 car is wide open. I think the odds on favorite is Ross Chastain. That makes sense. Chip Ganassi Racing has his W9 on file right now. They like him very much. Um, that appears a seamless transition, but we don't know for sure. We don't know where they want to go beyond this. Um, that we don't know how their funding has been affected as a result of this. So the free agency landscape, it's going to look a little bit different, but I think until we get to the other end of the uh, coronavirus pandemic, I don't know that we're going to have any clearer of a picture than we had two weeks ago when we had our free agency special. This means one less driver, one fewer driver, you know, in the pool for a a team owner like Rick Hendrick. Uh, Did it just get tougher for team owners to find a driver? Yeah, I don't think so. I I think, you know, when – when there was the perceived driver shortage in the mid 2000s, there were team owners throwing up their hands, doing weird stuff. Uh, I, Robert Yates racing was, look, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm an unabashed fan of Robert Yates. I didn't care for him I'm trying to coax Ricky Rudd out of retirement when there was plenty of talent to be had at the Xfinity series and truck series levels. Uh, you had Juan Pablo Montoya being pulled out of Formula One. That's some heady thinking by Chip Ganassi. But throughout all of that, Roger Penske just hired a young kid named Brad Keselowski and turned him into a star. So there are rocks to be turned over. There is talent out there. Chase Briscoe is interesting in the Xfinity series. Brett Moffat is interesting to me in the truck series. Ross Chastain is going to have his day in a top flight cup series ride. So there are names that might not be in the picture who have requisite talent that can be considered. And I think something like this is just going to force teams to consider talent that they otherwise would not have. And I, I think that's a good thing because if more young drivers are getting looked at and getting considered, then Ultimately, they're going to get more opportunities, better rides, and we're going to see different names come to the surface. Let's move on. Uh, Tough week, like I said, in NASCAR. Some of the other news that came out during uh, this hiatus from uh, the sport during the coronavirus, David, uh, the Gen 7 or the next Gen car has been officially delayed until 2022, Uh, much to the happiness, right, of a lot of teams just who are working on Working on the new car at the same time, you know, trying to do well this season, obviously, and a a lot of work that had to go into the new car in terms of testing and all that, which got postponed. So NASCAR, everyone got together and just said, we're going to push this till 2022. Uh, David, that's good news maybe for some, uh, but not as good news for other teams that were probably looking forward to this next generation car. So if we, if we had to think of some that this pushing the, the gen, next gen car to 2022. Does this benefit? Does this hurt anybody? What, what do you think in terms of who does this benefit by not going to the next generation car next year? Who, who comes to the top of mind? 
Okay, so I've got three, uh, two two drivers and one team uh, to consider. The first driver I think who benefits the most by far has to be Alex Bowman. He spent a year and some change as a test driver, which was a, a test simulation driver for Hendrick Motorsports, building around this Gen 6 car. And it's this car and this current rules package that clearly suits him. Both of his wins came in a 550 horsepower contest and anything different won't be the same. So a delay may extend a career high point for him. We don't know how real this is, what we're seeing from Alex Bowman. We talked about him being a potential Dale Jarrett type driver down the road with a late career renaissance but we don't know that to be sure. So he's going to want to hang on to the thing that he's good at the most. Makes sense. On a broader scale, Hendrick Motorsports as a whole is enjoying improved speed and results that is a tree that they probably don't want shook at all. They have the fastest car in the series and any advantage being enjoyed in the cup series right now is not guaranteed to carry over to the new car. But if the same car remains it stands to reason that Hendrick Motorsports can remain good. And the third one, I I factored in age on this one, Alan, but in Martin Truex's 17-year career in the Cup Series, he's driven three generations of car. Now, he's won 26 times. 25 of them came in a Gen 6. Hmm. He's He's 40 this year. He nearly won his second championship last year. He may as well have an age 41 season next year in the car with which he's already familiar. And uh, look, correct me if I'm wrong, but frankly, if you're getting to this age, I think you don't want to learn new tricks, right? I thought the same. Uh, and I had the same logic when I picked Denny Hamlin. I mean, right? I mean, it seems like they are Ooh, on, good call. They are yeah. mid rocket chip ride, right? <laughs> to the, to the top at the moment. Uh, you think of what they did last year. You know, the, his team as a whole, Chris Gabehart, Denny Hamlin, and Joe Gibbs as a whole, you know, throw Martin Truex in there. But look, the getting is good right now, right? I mean, the, they had a Joe Gibbs racing as a whole. Had an amazing year last year, a record-setting year. Uh, Denny Hamlin, the six wins, starts out this year with the Daytona 500. He's age 39, which we all know from, uh, if you listen to Positive Regression, what that means. Um, you know, premium production for a driver at age 39. Uh, the, the last thing you want is change, right? So uh, I think any team that's doing good right now wouldn't want to change. And if they have another year of what they have now, that's only going to benefit them. So yeah, a guy like Denny Hamlin immediately came to mind, especially with this still newish relationship with Chris Gaypart. I mean, they are doing something right. Uh, if you change that up now, the only thing, the only way you go is down, right? At least in my view, uh, when you're having such good success right now, that the last thing you want is to change anything up. So if you get another year of this Gen 6 car, that, that seems to only be a positive for the Joe Gibbs racings of the world and maybe even the team Hendricks, like you said. Yeah. Yeah. And I think for, you could probably make that case with the big teams that have that advantage. Uh, you could probably make a case that they're okay regardless of which direction NASCAR goes because they, they can afford to be good. Right. But like you said, it, it, when you're at that apex, when you're at that top spot, having the run that Denny has had, 
uh, having the run last year that Martin Truex had and having the run Hendrick is having now, that is a tough thing to part with just to, you know, kick the sport along into a new generation. I don't know if I want to mortgage my success for that. That, that is a, that is a tough thing to come to grips with. So yeah, I, I'm, I agree with, uh, with Denny being added to that list as well. Let, let's look at the other side of the coin. Who was really mm-hmm. looking for a change? Now, by the logic we just had, it would be any team that's not currently having super success, right? Any potential change that could help them. Uh, it seems like it would be good. So, so who doesn't want this delay? One of the first teams that came up, I did a little research, asked around, but RCR, David, they were, they, they have been, uh, really, you know, hands on in terms of helping develop this new car in terms of the testing. I believe they were, Austin Dillon wasn't even the first one out on track in this new car. Um, you know, in, in the testing that they've started. So I think of a team like RCR and the efforts that they are putting in to maybe, you know, get a jump on the new generation, get a jump on, on being equal or being trying to be up there with the top tier teams. Uh, I don't think this is great news for them, especially, you know, and I don't know this at all, but if any team had ever thought about punting on this year to really focus on next year, uh, they just got a setback because they now have to wait till 2022. So any smaller team, I would group like an RCR or a Roush in there. Um, those are ones I would think we're, we're really hoping for the change next year. Yeah, you're right on the money with RCR. Uh, I have heard just from asking around that they have made more money by being the Gen 7 test team than they have fielding their own teams. Uh, that is the kind of business it's created for RCR. But of course, you're right. There's a byproduct to all of this. They are becoming intimately familiar with what this car offers while other teams do not. And at the very least, they are poised to have an advantage once this car gets on the track, but that advantage is now going to have to wait. So bummer for them. You mentioned, you mentioned Roush Fenway and I, and I see your point there. Um, I, they, the way that they are set up, they sort of needed some teams in the throes of the playoff hunt to, maybe turn their focus to the new car. They, they needed that distraction. And if racing resumes, all the focus remains on the current car, meaning Roush Fenway lost one of the ways it could theoretically find an entrance into the playoffs with that Chris Busher team. And, you know, we have not talked about Chris Busher much this year, but through four races, he has a 12.5 place finishing average and he's ranked 14th in points. So it's early, but he is right there. Everything is going according to plan for the 17 team. But now this is just one thing that other teams were going to have to think about that is now off the table, allows them to compete unfettered and go all in on the 2020 season once it resumes. And one other point I learned, you know, I, I try to tend to do a little research before we record these, uh, David, but we have a lot of listeners in the garage, thankfully, um, pointed out to me, you think of Penske and Ganassi. Uh, Penske, you know, all the success they're having, they don't necessarily need this new car and, and you know, Ganassi having some success, but the the technology on this new car, a lot of it, uh, there, there's some crossover with what they have in IndyCar. So when you think about Penske and Ganassi and their relationships, obviously, with IndyCar teams as well, their familiarity with some of this technology, 
you would think they are welcoming this next gen car because of maybe the the head start that they already have with an you know an independent suspension or uh you know the different components that they they're already familiar with on the engineering side. So again, while they not while a team like Penske may not be begging for a change, um they may have been looking at a at an advantage for when the next generation car gets here. Now they have to wait a year. Fair point. Uh I will offer one rebuttal. Team Penske won a championship in Dodge's final year in NASCAR. So I think they're covered either way. I think they're, they're going to be good. <laughs> they're going to be good on the Gen 6 car. They're going to be good with the Gen 7 car. They're usually early adopters to any new rule change that comes to fruition. They won the first race, uh, last year with this, this current rules package. Uh, I think they're just going to be fine. I think yeah. they're just going to be safe. They've got, uh, they got talent in spades. Uh, yeah, they'll, it'll, it'll all, it'll all come out like roses for them. Yeah. And I, and I don't mean to be Debbie Downer, but there's always like this <laughs> pie in the sky, uh, thing, right? That like anytime they make a change, all right, this is a chance for the smaller teams to kind of get equal. And, uh, you know, to the other big teams that are having so much success. And I, I don't know if we ever see that happen, right? I mean, the big teams are good and successful <laughs> for a reason. I can remember. 2007, yeah. uh, Brickyard. And I was there interviewing, uh, Jeff Green of Haas CNC Racing and that Best Buy car. And all the talk was about going to the car of tomorrow. And it, there was some optimism that like going to this new car might equalize some of the big teams and the small team that Haas CNC Racing was. You know, there was, there, there was that optimism and that never happened, right? And then these changes that happen car to car and generation to generation, you know, the kings stay the king as a, a famous poet once said. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, for, I hope for more success for any team, you know, in this next gen car, but it seems like the bigger teams always obviously have all the resources and there, there's never that much found foundational change, right? Between anytime they make a big change. Yeah. The, the cream rises to the top. And, and I think this is just a testament to people, uh, good teams with the most resources, they become that way because of people and intelligence on one car seems to permeate to another car. I've, I've yet to meet someone completely baffled by how a car works that all of a sudden one change happens and they become a genius. I've yet to see that. So, <laughs> um, there is, a, there is a lot of that, but I think it's, this is a people thing as much as NASCAR moves the goalpost on these teams. These teams are so good. Yeah, there there may be some initial stutter, but eventually they find that goalpost and then they know what plays to draw up to get there. So it, it's not, it is something to take comfort in if you're a fan of some of these smaller teams, but the reality is it comes down to people and resources and the ones with the most intelligent and the deepest pocket, um, they're the ones that come out the victor. And we know why NASCAR needs to change. It always needs to evolve. It needs to keep up with the technology, keep up with the Joneses. But from a fan's perspective, I mean, waiting another year, you think there's any fallout for that? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, generally people seem to hate change. So, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, maybe I'm being down on people there, but you know, and at the moment things to be, things seem to be going well. I, th I thought we had great racing in 2019. They made the switch to some of the new, you know, shorter track packages. We haven't seen that much this year, but the one race we did see it was universally praised. So it looks like we're going to get more of that when we go back racing. So I don't know if any fans are, are clamoring for this change or saying we need it or are overly disappointed the next-gen car isn't coming in 2021. Uh, but 
I don't think there'll be any fallout either. So I just, I, I think it'll be just indifferent until we see it on the track. You saw the online reaction to a wheel containing one lug nut, right? Yeah. That, that wasn't sensible at all. But I, I, I agree with you. If anything, I think this provides more intrigue if the 2020 season continues because now every team can conceivably go all in on competing. And there was a sense prior to this year that the 2020 season would be a lame duck season and the status quo would hold steady. Well, Hendrick Motorsports proved that theory incorrect. They made gains and certainly other teams can too. I, for one, am all for competitive gains. I don't like lame duck seasons. I'm certain older drivers, like what we just mentioned, tell Martin Truex that this is a lame duck season. Tell Kevin Harvick this that we're going to punt this season. I don't think that's going to go well for you. I'm certain that they don't like hearing that their final few seasons will be exercises in futility. And frankly, I don't believe that to ever be the case. This is a competition. These teams are filled with smart people, but they're all competitors. And the idea that they can't push forward because their attention is supposed to exist elsewhere isn't a concept typically instilled in human thinking. So if you're a fan of good hard racing, I gotta think you're, this is, this is at least good news for another year and a half for you that you're gonna see more of the things that you have been seeing, which I'm, I agree, I agree with you. It's, it has been, um, very good, very compelling competition on the racetrack. Yeah. Let's hope we get back to it sooner than later. All right, we are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and Luminary. We are available no matter your device. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That stuff does really help in spreading the word. We do notice it, and it is so appreciated. If you have any questions, send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. We love answering your questions. You know that. David, you're still hard at work. What are you working on? This week on The Athletic, I wrote about Carl Edwards, recently added to NASCAR's Hall of Fame ballot. He had a truly weird career, one of the best producers during his time in the sport, also one of the least efficient passers, and I hit the highlights of his complex career uh, earlier this week, and also I ranked the top 20 driver upgrades of the last 20 years. Transactions like Joe Gibbs Racing going from J.J. Yaley to Kyle Busch. Upgrade. Or Michael Waldrip Racing going from Michael Waldrip to Martin Truex. Upgrades like that. That should be posted by the time we post this episode. So please check all that out. Good stuff. And don't you forget, Race Hub still on Monday through Thursday, 6 p.m., doing it how we can, what we can from home, piecing it together. There are a lot of people from their houses making this effort to bring Race Hub to your screen. And it's awesome. You know, it's entertaining. It's a half hour, an hour every night to uh, give you something else to think about and talk a little racing each night. And also don't forget the iRacing events on the Fox family every weekend. It's been good. So we're trying to keep racing uh, in your life and in the discussion. So uh, just make sure you do that. and Give me a follow on Twitter at Alan Kavana. 
But for David Smith, I am Alan Kavana. This has been episode 57 of Positive Progression. Thank you for listening. I hope to see you all at a track very soon. Rose Davis, historian and co-host of the sports podcast, Burn It All Down. And now I'm hosting the new season of American Prodigy, all about black girls in gymnastics. For the last 40 years, black gymnasts have moved from the margins to the core of the sport and changed gymnastics along the way. Now they tell their stories. You'll meet trailblazers like Diane Durham, superstars like Jordan Childs, and everyone in between. Listen to American Prodigies on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.